Hello, and welcome to the Ripley Recall. The Ripley Recall is a podcast created by the Camp Ripley Public Affairs Office to highlight and discuss the events and activities of Camp Ripley and the Minnesota National Guard. Focusing on the people and operations that make up the many departments on Camp Ripley, interagency partners, environmental stewardship, major exercises in the surrounding community. The content of this podcast does not necessarily express the views and opinions of the state of Minnesota, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Welcome back to the Ripley Recall, 40-minute podcast shared every week from right here in beautiful central Minnesota. I'm your host, Mr. Anthony Housie, U.S. Army retired, and with me today is First Lieutenant William Hermanson, Public Affairs Officer on Camp Ripley. Welcome, sir. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. So I think a lot of things that uh, that people don't realize, that the things that we'll look at today is, uh, you know, what is Camp Ripley? It's, it's kind of this enigma that's along the highway that a lot of people drive by, but they don't really know what it is. Yeah, we're kind of hidden out in the woods, aren't we? Uh, it's a primary train site for the Minnesota National Guard, uh, and really all of our partners as well. We get a lot of uh, other states, and uh, we've got some state partnership programs with uh, Croatia. We have the Norwegian Exchange Program, but uh, we're about uh, 53,000 acres of training space. Uh, we employ anywhere from 800 to 1,000 personnel, and uh, we manage roughly 70 training areas, uh, 45 live fire ranges, and 23 non-live fire ranges, you know, th- and those kind of include the, the bridging sites, the urban structures, simulation, uh, drop zones. Uh, there's just a whole lot to do on base that people think we are just a, a bunch of empty woods, and there's a lot of good uh, up-to-date facilities and state-of-the-art uh training uh, facilities and modern user-friendly ranges that are downrange. And uh, we're glad to see our partners use a little bit more of that. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a little bit more to us than, you know, what, uh, what folks see. So, uh, you know, down, down in the Metro and whatnot, there, everybody's heard the stories of Fort Snelling and Fort Snelling really was the, the, uh, the initiation of the military or, or settlements here in Minnesota as we went through history. Uh, you know, what are, what are some of the, advantageous parts or what are, what are some of the early parts of Camp Ripley's history? Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. Camp Ripley has been here forever. Uh, you know, prior to even uh, the 1930s when most people knew it was here. Uh, I think it started what at Fort Ripley uh, is with, with the original name and we still have a town Fort Ripley right down the road. Right. right. Uh, I think there's only 60 people in that town, but it's still there. And uh, there's still that debate that, you know, we had on that uh, little Facebook thread we had of uh, why people are confused between Camp Ripley and Fort Ripley. And uh, f- for many years, the Fort Snelling was the primary uh, base for Minnesota. But uh, was it 1849? The, uh, Minis- the Army decided, hey, we need something a little more north. Um, and there's a lot of history of why we needed up here at North, and it was mainly because it's a, an important supplier out, uh, especially near that uh, growing settlement areas up here in the Crow Ring area. Uh, we was built to uh, originally be that hub, but then it became a buffer between the uh, Dakota and Chippewa tribes, as well as to uh, you know supervise some of the uh, government payments of money on the Winnebago Reservation um, near that uh, Long Prairie, Rip Early, Rip Fort Ripley area. Um, but it, it was more of a presence for that supplier out and the, to show everybody that the Army was here in northern Minnesota, uh, which not a lot of people saw. Right, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, you know, I mean, settlement was really starting to grow uh, at, at that time in the early 1800s, mid-1800s there. And, you know, you bring up a good point. You know, the, you know Camp Ripley, as, as we know it now, wasn't necessarily always Camp Ripley. That was something that came much later. But the Fort, uh, Fort Ripley... Uh, you know that that showed up, of course, like you're saying, in the in the mid 1800s, and and you know survived for as long as frontier forts usually do. Yeah, which aren't, aren't usually uh, very long during that time period. Very very dangerous time period for everybody involved in that area. Uh, but yeah, it, it disappeared for a while. It right. really did. And yeah, it was so gone. the frontier kind of moved on, and and then the necessity for it for being there moved on as well. So yeah, and then what is it, roughly then. Then the big war happened, right? Right. Well, after the, the, the Great War, and then the big war happened afterwards in the 1930s. And, uh, it, you know, it was kind of, a weird, kind of a weird happenstance that it happened, too, because Minnesota was kind of looked at that a uh, primary uh, location for the Army because we, modeled, we model Eastern Europe. Our landscape yeah. really does. So we had a very small area of training down toward the cities uh, in the 30s and the 20s, and that's where they primarily trained. But after a while, that just became too small. Um, right. So then they, the legislators and the politicians and the Army, and they all started kind of looking around, where in Minnesota else can you go? Uh, and I don't even, if I remember the story correctly, and your, your history buff as well to correct me, they did not remember that Camp Ripley or Fort Ripley was an actual training site before. They just kind of found the area. They yep. thought it was a good training area. And then afterwards, when they decided, you know, roughly 1929, that these 12,000 acres were great, let's let's buy it, let's put a training site. And then they realized, oh, this was a fort before. Uh, there's, some, there's some buildings here, and we still have the ruins here today. Uh, they are ruined. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, most of the settlers and farmers that kind of took over this the, the area um, – yeah, made sure that they used the remnants of what the fort was, I think. so. I think material is just as hard to get back then as it is today, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, 1930s, they built up for buildings, utilities, ranges, roads. Uh, and in 1931, actually on my birthday, June 14th, uh, Flag Day, and right. uh, they started to uh, begin training on it. That's, that's when the opening was. Uh, and, you know, after a couple of years, they, airplanes were becoming important. Yep. Uh, they were yep. they're getting a bigger piece of the army's puzzle, um, and the they created the airfield in 1933. So the 109th Observation Squadron, uh, based in St. Paul, could come up and train with the army soldiers. You know, right? That, that was an important piece of our uh, warfare at that time, and this is again at a very. This is before we even thought that something big was going to happen. There were inklings uh, in the country, but. Uh, and you saw what happened in Europe and the uprising of uh, certain individuals that decided to uh, uh, get into power. But nothing, This we were still an isolationist country. We did not want to yeah, do right. anything else. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we just were training a very small force at that time. Um, Ken, Camp Ripley was not a, uh, what it is now. It was mostly a tent city, uh, mm-hmm. tents, camps, uh, uh, enlisted men would have to put it up and bring it down. Of course, the officers wouldn't help because why would we put up tents ourselves? So we have you guys do it, right? Right, with, yeah. with a rifle range right out the back door. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, almost like safety wasn't the issue so much, but it, right. it, convenience was more of Exactly. Wake up in the morning, uh, roll out a roll out of uh, probably off the floor, you know, off the sleeping bag and mm-hmm. cot and uh, get in line and have somebody yell at you and shoot down wherever there was an open area and then get back and 
probably run a little bit was probably the only PT <laughs> they did, uh, and then go back to bed or hang out for hours. I mean, sit by the fire. And, and it wasn't, you know, this is not too far off from when the Civil War happened, and Minnesota has a pretty rich history in the Civil War. And a lot of these guys probably had fathers or grandfathers that were in it. Uh, right. So th- they're probably used to that, sitting by the fire. Yeah, there were, I mean, there were so many advancements that came following the Civil War, and then the Spanish-American War, of course, right? Then, mm-hmm. uh, especially the advancements in medicine and, and, and tactics and some of the formations and support elements there. Uh, you know, our army had to change and had to adapt. And, uh, you know, being, uh, being a former soldier and seeing a lot of the soldiers nowadays, it's, it's almost like, well, we've always had all this technology. We've always had all this, um, you know, convenience and whatnot, support of being a soldier and uh, no, we had to come from somewhere, so we we really learned uh, the hard way and had to adapt to that. Yeah, and it, it's super interesting how that works. Now we have uh, hot weather uniforms, right? Right. Uh, compared to the day where they were just straight, wearing straight wool in World War One and World War Two and uh, cotton, and now we have this thin layer of material. Uh, and imagine in the Civil War, that was thick material. So it's really hard for the the modern sur- soldier to remember. Rifles were at some point in time only five at a time. Right, they were only one at a time. You had to, you had to, you know, stack it in. So it, it's cool that we have uh, been such a big part of the army, and Camp Ripley is a huge part of the army and has been since its creation of, you know, recreation of the thirties. Mm-hmm. Uh, training. Uh, I mean, this was a this was an enlisted training post for World War Two. So a lot of soldiers came through. Uh, in World War II and did their basic training here at Camp Ripley uh, or advanced training here at Camp Ripley, and then they went overseas. Right. Uh, it, it, and it, it worked well. Uh, and so even in 19, you know, in that 1937, 1940, when we really got into training for large scale and we started to realize as a country, this may be inevitable. We may be getting into a, a conflict overseas. Then we brought in people for large scale maneuvers. Again, we model Eastern Europe's landscape. Yeah. Uh, so it was yep. almost uh, perfect. Um, yeah, that 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 element right there is something that uh, folks nowadays have never seen, never experienced before. I mean, uh, the, the my predecessors did things like reforge or the return of forces to Germany, and, and did full scale maneuvers across farm fields and communities and whatnot throughout Germany. You know, in the early part of the forties, there they were doing army scale maneuvers through six, seven states. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the story uh, coming through here is that um, you know an infantry regiment and an infantry brigades would move through the town of Piers and, and camp off in some farmer's field. One, that's something that nobody uh, in the military now has really ever seen before. That's uh, quite an achievement uh, yeah. to be part of that or operation. You know. I imagine if, uh, and most of, you know, a lot of Minnesotans like to go trolling in the woods and walking and finding, uh, you, you find some trinkets out there. In sure the woods. do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even me uh, getting lost as lieutenant in the, uh, doing land nav, uh, I found some old 40 beer cans out there in Camp Ripley when I'm just walking around uh, for hours. They were still the pop tabs. <laughs> right, <laughs> they, right. They were the 40s beer cans that we found. And, uh, you know, you're right. Go walk through the woods of Minnesota. You, you'll probably find some old stuff just yeah, dug in the ground. There's plenty of history still out there, yeah. out and about. But yeah, you know, in, into World War II, we, uh, uh, you know, we didn't have a, a ton of activity. We didn't have as much as, can, uh, as Fort Snelling and some of the southern um, installations, of course, weather being a concern with that. When the, the blizzard of 1942 actually pushed out the uh, unit that was training here at the time, the 99th Infantry Battalion, 
which is the only active duty unit that was formed here, formed out of Norwegian Americans and mm-hmm. and and whatnot. There, so uh, our winter weather is even too much for training sometimes. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, going back to the point where you said the soldiers aren't uh, aware of maybe some of the things they didn't have back in the forties, right? Heated buildings uh, are uh, they're they're great to have now, right. but they they slept in. Tents. Mm-hmm. We we have the tin hut still here for another couple years, right? And I I've stayed in there during the winter and it's miserable. So I can't even imagine uh, back in the forties. And I can understand why they decided to move out and not do a lot of training here in nineteen forty three, especially after that blizzard. It's like ah, you know what? Minnesota is a little too cold, a little too snowy for uh, what we can support. Uh, it, it's important training to the winter training, uh, and we see that now when it becoming a, a bigger piece for us, but. Back then, gosh, you, you can even tell about the uh, the best own. The winter equipment was not readily available for everybody. Right, it just yeah. wasn't. Uh, those guys uh, fought in the the ardens in the forest, and they didn't have gloves. They didn't have coats for a gosh, a couple weeks. So imagine that and doing basic training. It's not hardened soldiers yet. Right, right. Just yep. just brand new people coming out of uh, their their farmhouses and training. It's I'm, I I can understand it. Uh, and we're kind of jumping on that point for the winter operations nowadays, but uh, it, the past always leads up to something in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now we're uh, now we're well into it. Now we we do all kinds of winter training. We actually seek out the most frozen place that we can find, and and but, but like you said, we have the heated buildings that we can yeah. f- finish off into. After you're done being cold, let's go inside the tea <laughs> building and warm up a little bit, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah um, you know, one of the the elements here towards the end of World War II was, was that our uh, our current infantry division here in Minnesota was was one of the pieces that helped us um, settle as the Minnesota National Guard. The, following World War II, the the National Guard kind of changed from the 34th Infantry Division into the 47th. Yeah, what a what a storied history uh, our infantry has in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you really think deep into it, right? This first Minnesota. In Civil War, always first boots on ground, uh, and you know, just coming from my heart, the artillery uh, first round fired in uh, World, World War II. War, yep. First boots on ground, World War One, World War Two for the infantry right. in Minnesota. A storied history, uh, but you're right. Yeah, we went from the 34th to the 47th ID mm-hmm. uh, for a while, uh, and we decided to uh, run with that for a while. And uh, they did a lot of what we still do today, uh, railhead. You know, we do a lot of logistical support for the Midwest. Right. And that was kind of their bread and butter. Um, we, we have a central location, and we still have it now. Um, but th- that land also grew in 1951 afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. They kind of championed the whole, um, you know, improvement of what we currently have uh, in cantonment here on Camp Ripley and then grew our training area. So, so we were able to do more specific maneuvers in kind of a – Secure area. Yeah, and that's because the, the 47th ID uh, were able to support that. And uh, we actually had an infantry division in Minnesota uh, dedicated to us. So they got up to, uh, what, 45,000 acres and then in 1951 and then slowly bought more land. And now we're up to that 53,000 acres. Um, and we've had that since the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they started building up the ranges, the, the railhead, more railhead, uh, more uh, trails and roads, and not just for our use, but for civilian use as well, because right. we do have a lot of civilian partners we do. Uh, that yeah. come in. Um, but 
it was a it was a summer only post at that time. It, everything shut down in the winter. In the sixties, it still was cold. Right. In the fifties, they still didn't have it. Um, so yeah, we uh, we built the tin huts <laughs> in about the sixties too, which amazingly are still here, right? Um, and they're, they're great that they're still here because it's hard to get rid of that kind of history. Uh, and it's fun to see that the uh, new privates and new specialists that come in still have to sleep in the tin huts. Uh, and I've done it too, and I know you've done it quite a few times. Yep. So yeah. it's kind of cool to be able to do that. But uh, falling asleep to rain on corrugated tin, it just you know it's and waking up with puddles underneath. <laughs> make sure your stuff's <laughs> off the floor. But yeah, and in the seventies, you know, we we started to build up those year-round barracks uh, because winter training was becoming a a big thing and. Uh, seen some adversaries around the world that operate in the winter, and we just weren't good at it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we took we took a few lumps, um, you know, during the Korean War, mm-hmm. um, as a, as a force, as a total force, uh, not just us, the Marines, you know, everybody, uh, you know, experiencing winter warfare training again. I mean, you'd think that we learned our lesson from a lot of the operations in, in later the later part of World War Two. But here we are again, um, you know, fighting an enemy that's prepared for winter combat operations, and, and uh, we we necessarily were not. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of these uh, camps and and forts and training areas and whatnot had to redevelop that, and then, and the forty seventh was a big part of that Cold War effort to reengage cold weather training. Yeah, and it, and that's exactly what it is. We just for some odd reason didn't learn from our lessons, uh, but now we are, and we, we continue to do it. And I'm I'm glad we we're. We're one of the few cold weather bases, right? It, there's just not a lot out there. Uh, right. But we continuously try to improve our winter training ops and our facilities and everything. And uh, that enables our civilian partners to train in the winter too, right? So we have a lot of state patrol. We have a lot of uh, we have a lot of firefighters, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, EMTs, those first responders. They do a lot of winter training up here as well. Heck, we even have the uh, Navy dive team and the Coast Guard school that come up here to do winter dive training. So Right. And that's been something that's just happened in the past four or five years. Right. I mean, that's a, something they tested out, and now they want to bring all their different organizations from around the country. Folks that dive in Hawaii on a regular basis, they want to come to negative 20-degree Camp Ripley and go under the ice. Yeah, isn't it crazy that the past has always seen kind of 30, 40, 50 years in the future of, hey, this still might be a thing. And I'm really happy that uh, the Minnesota has continued to push on that. And I don't know why they would come to want to dive in the cold wind or water, but apparently people do polar dive the polar bear uh, swims too so <laughs> right yeah I, I don't know people are crazy that, that's just me well good well sir i think we're going to take a short break uh, and listen to our folks from the minnesota army national guard and we'll be right back with the ripley recall the basic requirements that's what the rest of the world does contributions come easy commitment on the other hand is hard true commitment takes a concerted effort on your part. Working hard and giving 100% is your commitment. You will find that day when your muscles ache, your joints are sore, and you don't know how you will carry on. It is in that moment when you look deep within yourself and find that which motivates you to drive on. You will not accept defeat because quitting is not in your nature. Instead, you will pick yourself up and show the world your level of commitment because that commitment is at the core of who you are. It takes drive, the kind that doesn't fade when impossible obstacles are staring you in the face. How badly do you want to succeed? This is about commitment. A commitment to yourself, a commitment to those around you, and a commitment to make a difference. You will succeed because you are America's future. There must be a willingness to march a little further, to carry a heavier load, 
to step out into the dark and the unknown for the safety and well-being of others. Now that, my friends, is commitment. We live here, we work here, we serve here. We are the Minnesota Army National Guard. Welcome back to Ripley Recall. I'm Mr. Housie, Camp Ripley Public Affairs, and I'm also with uh, Lieutenant William Hermanson of the Camp Ripley Public Affairs Office. Uh, we're talking through some of the history of Camp Ripley and what it, uh, where it, we came from and where we're going. Uh, sir, I think when we left off, we were talking about winter operations training and some of the, the elements that we kind of created from that. And, 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 of course, the things that we're doing nowadays with all these different out-of-state units and, of course, our Minnesota National Guard that come up here for winter operations training. Uh, we also deal internationally with some winter operations training, have since 1974, is that right? Oh, yeah. Uh, this winter training ops has been our bread and butter, right? But who does it better than most of us is uh, Norway. Right. Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> they live in this stuff, you know, all year round. So uh, back in 1974, uh, there uh, two veterans of the World War II, uh, an, an inspector general, Norwegian inspector general, and a major general, uh, inspector general for Norway's, I think, Herluf Nygaard, uh, and and the other uh, general was Major General uh, Francis Greenleaf, and they shook hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- that's all it was, was a conversation. Hey, let's be, let's create a program that we can share our knowledge and our training and our cultures. Right. Uh, and it's really easy for Minnesota to share Norwegian culture, right? Most people up north are uh, of Norwegian uh, descent. Uh, so then the, under the guidance of Major General, I think, Saiban, uh, at that point in time, he was the adjutant general for Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, personnel from the Norwegian Home Guard, which is our, their equivalent of our National Guard, uh, were to take part and become familiar with each other's uh, weapons, equipment, uh, how they organize their training, operations, and their different exercises. And we continue it to today. Yeah, uh, we're absolutely. We're almost 49 years, I think, Tony, isn't it? Yeah, com- yeah, coming up on the big five zero here shortly, but yes. Yeah, yeah so it, it, it's crazy, and... It, Gosh, what a, what, a, what a great partnership we have. I, I spent my first uh, a couple minutes in Valhalla yesterday in mm-hmm. uh, the governor's cabin, and gosh, showing my wife around and seeing all the trinkets and the, the gifts that I've shared between the two uh, nations throughout the year. And it, the history there is just uh, remarkable Right to see what Norway has and what we've been able to give them. And, um, and we're not done. You know? No, no, certainly not. And, and, you know, I think that is the, the theme almost every year is that this – this isn't a one-time opportunity. This isn't a one-time operation here. This is something that, you know, we're we're going to work at this year. We're going to learn a lot of things this year. We're going to share a ton of things culturally this year mm-hmm. uh, and then prepare for the next year because this is a benefit to both organizations. Yeah, and, and for decades after that, you know, handshake agreement, uh, we have sent troops over to Norway, and they have sent troops over to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did winter operations training uh, you know, cold weather survival, tactics, weapons, familiarization uh, with, their, uh, with their equipment. And I think it was at camp, uh, and you can probably uh, say the name a little better because you, you've been a part of Norway quite a bit, uh, Torpamon uh, in Norway. Yeah, so, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, your yeah, Norwegian's coming out. My so. Norwe- oh, yeah, you betcha. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't you know. Uh, and, and that's cool to be able to go to a base over in Norway and see. Uh, and this is not just, uh, you know, five, ten people. This is close to a hundred soldiers. hundred people go over there mm-hmm. uh, and see it. So they see it, they bring it back, and they tell the younger soldiers, hey, I did this experience. This is great. Uh, you should do this. And they come back better soldiers. Absolutely. Uh, they absolutely do, and they can share that knowledge with 
uh, some of the people here. Uh, and then some of their uh, home uh, guard uh, youth uh, come over here to Camp Ripley and they see our tactics, our techniques, our procedures. Uh, but they also see our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which was probably similar to theirs, but we have we have a bit of a difference. Yeah, uh, we Americanized it. Yeah, we yeah, Americanized for, it. For better or worse, but we yeah. Americanized it. <laughs> yeah, we definitely Americanized it. And and they love it, and they love coming over here and talking to us, and uh, their leadership loves that uh, we welcome them, and our leadership loves that they welcome us. Uh, it is just a... It's such a great program and such a great partnership. And um, in the 90s, we created the, and that was really all just a handshake agreement still for decades. It was just based on a handshake, right? And then in the 90s, when we decided to become more logistically uh, uh, paper-driven, a formal uh, agreement was established. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that included the uh, participation of that 100 soldiers and airmen. Let's uh, not forget that. Air National Guard folks. We absolutely have our Air National Guard that, um, they need the winter training as well, and they, they do great and a great participation with that. And uh, same thing for them. And as the warfare had shifted and things have changed and adversaries have become different. Uh, always uh, does, right? Always. Yeah. It's always a fluid situation. Uh, we, we did that same thing. The Norway Norwegians would change their training to uh, give us their modern take on winter survival. Mm-hmm. And we would do the same thing over here. How would Americans survive in the winter? Right. How do we train in the winter? And uh, and it just shifted all through the 21st century. And and then, you know, um, that brings a sense of family with, yeah. with the Norwegians, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when they're in pain, we're in pain. And when we're in pain, they're in pain. Uh, Minnesota and Norway have a special bond, I think, because of this program. And a big example of that is in 2011 uh, when they had some, uh, ter- uh, some terrible... Uh, domestic terrorism events, uh, the leaders of the exchange opted to uh, introduce the Norwegian soldiers to uh, some cooperative training with the, mil- mer- with the American military, uh, our interagency partners, focusing on how to combat the domestic terrorism right. uh, specifically. Yeah. So that, that e- the involvement of it and then us being a- able to help them out with the problem that they were having, it was just a special thing for everybody. And, and we actually brought their law enforcement over too and trained them a little bit on it. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's something that the National Guard, the, the National Guard here in the United States has been doing for decades is working with our with the you know what we're calling today interagency partners with the state law enforcement with the local law enforcement it's uh, you know I think even folks here in the states don't have a good grasp on what the National Guard does in support of domestic operations you know as as law enforcement uh, over the years and whatnot has had the need for the National Guard assistance um, you know they can send that request up and then by order of the governor. National Guard is deployed, but it isn't an assistance role. It's, you know, the National Guard has never taken over a city of, you yeah, know, the city of Minneapolis. You know, yeah. we've been, we're, we're a supporting role for, for the, for the, the our, our civilian partners. And that's for floods and riots and, you know, whatever else comes up. Yeah. We're not a police force, right. uh, but we absolutely are able to support uh, and uh, keep, keep some uh, sense of, uh, calm and uh, understanding, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's what we want to bring. We want to bring public some peace. Yeah. Uh, yep. We want to be able to be there for our public and our, our um, civilians. And that's what that's what our goal is till, till today. It, uh, it is, yeah. And that's what, kind of what we were training the uh, Norwegians on, and they were sharing some of their training with their domestic operations with us. Right. Uh, how, right. how to do that and not 
do it in a police force manner, right? Right. Because we are not a police force. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a model that a lot of countries don't have. It's, uh, you know, other countries around the world, it's either one way or the other. When the, when the military comes in, the military's taken over. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it is a model to kind of work off of and develop their own plans for it, um, how the civilian uh, police force and the military can cooperate. Yeah, and then during that time, you know, that 2000, from the 90s to 2011, 2001, right? Just a just curious time in Minnesota's history, mm-hmm. uh, especially, you know, Minnesota. The, the 34th ID was created back in 91, so. Uh, right. That, that to be able to uh, to share our knowledge and our, uh, our operational ability to be that sense of uh, calm and uh, peace for the civilian operations, I think really helped them out and they helped us out at the same time. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you, you bring up the um, the reactivation of the 34th Infantry Division uh, and their placement here in Minnesota taking over for the 47th. You know, that's that's almost a culture shock all on its own right there. The Viking Division has been around since 46 after World War II. Mm-hmm. They developed all these plans and procedures and, and things like that. And now this battle-hardened infantry division from you know, from the pages of history comes in and takes over. Uh, and then, and then, like you said, I mean, in the, in the late part of the 20th century, uh, a lot of things changed. Yeah, we, we shifted from a large-scale operation to a coin-based operation, right? Mm-hmm. And it, the, the really cool thing is everyone loves the Viking division. The history there is that they did a really good job uh, between 1947 and 91. Uh, but you see the Red Bull, and that means something right. to everybody around yep. the world. That's not just a Minnesota thing or an Iowa thing. That is a that is a worldwide symbol that people recognize, um, and it, it's great to have that uh, representation, right? So yeah, I, we brought him back in 1991, um, and it was uh, it was just it was just something cool to be able to see that, and we knew why we brought it back in '91. Uh, we we had some different things going on in the in the world, and um, from the efforts of Minnesota's adjunct general Ellard Walsh. The division was built from scratch, uh, and veteran transfers and new recruits uh, from Minnesota, North Dakota, um, mm-hmm. and they, Major General Hendrickson uh, took over command um, back in 19—he was the uh, chief of staff for the 34th Division uh, in North Africa in 1943, and uh, yeah, he—, he Gosh, what a history that guy has! Right, he could probably write a book. He, he set a lot of precedents in it, and that that was still true, you know, fifty years later. Yeah. Um, you know, he the 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 object of the division and, and the direction of the division and, and what it's represent, like I said, what it's represented uh, since its creation has been a has been true today, just as much as it was back then. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, the history of it is just insane, and how. It goes from, like you said earlier, the Spanish-American War. Uh, we still have the picture over by the DFAC where you have the Red the red Bull uh, or the skull that's just hanging out, and you see all the soldiers just kind of going. Um, and that's a story in itself of how the actual Red Bull was taken, right, or how it was depicted, how we picked that as our, our symbol. But, uh, yeah, and, and what people don't realize, um, and maybe they do realize, but it's, it's not understood, is this is not just a Minnesota division. Um, right. Yeah. It, the division is multiple states, right? So uh, right now we kind of fall under min- – the headquarters is in Minnesota. Minnesota. Uh, mm-hmm. Right out in Arden Hills. But Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, there's, there's soldiers everywhere from different states, and they, mm-hmm. they work really well with us. Uh, so 
yeah, uh, it's. Yeah, that's, that's a feather in our uh, our cap a little bit to be able to cooperate with with, with states. You know, we give them such a hard time, especially around football season. You know, who well, mainly wants? Iowa. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we don't want we don't want to give Iowa too much. Uh, we don't give Iowa too much credit for that one. I, I spent a year with them at the 194 uh, FA, and they're really good soldiers and really good people, and they, they do love uh, being a part. Uh, and, and that relationship between Minnesota and Iowa is special, right? Uh, the, the pig and all that uh, unnecessary uh, crazy talk. But right. even like North Dakota, uh, and when the division was created uh, and kind of ran through that uh, period of peace, uh, it was federalized and sent to Camp Rucker. From Alabama, 1951 to 54, during the Korean War, never saw combat. Uh, so after that, the Korean War is used as a replacement division, and they were those people, those soldiers, were sent to a regular army, uh, and it just kind of, it kind of just went away. The 34th ID and 47th took over, and uh, divisions North Dakota elements were transferred out in you know the 60s and during mm-hmm. service wide uh and we do this every couple of years right we start to figure out where the army is uh, useful and where it's not right and how big are we how small are we and, and where it's going to go that's that's yeah yeah we, we we see it every year you know we got to get rid of thirteen thousand troops or 100 troops or however it works uh and uh after that we reconfigured it all and other resignations making it in the 47th at that time an entirely minnesotan division um Again, was reorganized in the 60s, uh, and there's a special little uh, thing that they kind of ran. It's called ROAD, the Reorganization Objective Army Division. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really that uh, was mostly based on the battle group designations, and uh, they were dropped and substituted by battalions, and that's when we went to the battalions, right? Right. Uh, assigned yeah. to flexibly to brigades, and Minnesota, again, is interesting with their brigades because they have a field artillery that reports to a brigade out in Wyoming. Uh, which a lot of soldiers have served under. Uh, and that was just such a time, those, those 40s, 50s, and 60s, the military is really trying to figure out how they want to operate in the future. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of reorganizing, the 47th, the 34th, the 2nd, the 1st. And we're experiencing that again now, whereas, as the 34th Division is changing again and adding the division artillery back yeah. to it. And, and the cool thing about now is we're not being uh, replaced or reorganized. We're being uh, grown. Right. We're given room to grow. Mm-hmm. The Devardi thing is a, is a really amazing and, and fun thing to be a part of, you know, having Devardi finally in National Guard and being that uh, central hub is, is cool. For me, as a field artillery officer, it's really fun to see and really cool to see that Minnesota is a big key of the future of the Army, uh, right. specifically. Yep. And they trust us in that sense, too, right? Uh, so then, yeah, and, and that kind of speaks volume to why the 34th was created again. Uh, in 91, when it was reactivated, and uh, immediately after that, and I'm sure you can speak to a lot of this because you're a Gulf War uh, buff, uh, former units, all of them, were reactivated, 34th ID. Uh, the division was renamed, but for the official uh, lineage purposes, uh, the Department of the Army does not recognize the continuity between the 47th and 34th. Right. Uh, yep. And that's just yeah. for simple yep. There's a separation there. Yeah. So we're trying to create that separation, but... Uh, but the you know the forty seventh was uh, on the rolls longer than any other National Guard division uh, that did not see combat. Right? Right. They supported logistics and training and growth, uh, and that's kind of in my opinion why they wanted to go to the thirty fourth. Forty seventh wasn't a battle hardened like you said earlier. Thirty mm-hmm. fourth is so now we have a battle going on overseas. Let's let's strike some fear into people's hearts and get some history and some lineage and 
like it or not, the army loves their history. Right. And they love that symbolism, right? Uh, So we throw the 34th out there and the Red Bull, and we tell our history. Nobody messed with the Red Bulls in World War II. Right. Yeah, during World War II, they they spent more days in combat than any other Mm -hmm. division in in the United States Army. And when when they deployed again uh, in 2006 to Iraq, Again, they spent more days in theater, in combat, than any other Army unit in history. So, Yeah, those, uh, yeah, th- it, it, and even to today. I mean, there's stories out there that there are different units that would paint the Red Bull on their hoods of the Humvee because they knew the enemy would run and hide because there was no, uh, there was no holding back when the 34th Red Bull came through. We, right. we protected our people and we did our mission and we always do our mission well. Yep, yep, Absolutely. Absolutely. Coming back to Camp Ripley, though, I mean, as, you know, in the post-9-11 era and whatnot, our our growth continued. Uh, you know, we, we changed a lot of the uh, training areas that we had here, um, yeah, in, including the simulated village uh, to, to support tactical training, in cl- close quarters, urban settings. Uh, we introduced the improvised uh, explosive device training lanes, medical simulations training centers, uh, a lot of different things like that. We actually brought, um, you know, the civilian population back into training uh, as an as an element that our soldiers needed to adapt to and, and to be concerned with. Because now, here we are. We're not necessarily fighting uh, another army line to line across a battlefield. Now we have to I- integrate and be a part of these different types of counterinsurgency operations and things like that. Yeah, which means working with civilians, right? right. Contractors, mm-hmm. uh, huge part of the army now, huge part of the military in general. Contractors, and uh, and th- that's where Minnesota and Camp Ripley specifically is a key piece is the civilian partners that we we have here, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere from the state patrol to uh, the you know Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we also have uh, local police, first responders, DNR. Uh, all the con- we have a lot of contractors on base, <laughs> uh, so not everybody here wears a green suit like uh, me. Uh, people like you that wear a uniform, they are mostly retired and they've worked for the military, but they decided the civilian sector was uh, a better role for them. And we, as green suitors, as we call ourselves, uh, rely upon the expert uh, the expertise of the civilian state partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we can understand when they do need support, like the state patrol or uh, local police, when they do need support. We can rely upon their training that they've given us. And right. Then we're partners. It's yep. not this. That relationship is there. Yeah. yeah. It's not a brand new, hey, oh gosh, the military's here. It's, they're trying to take over. No, they understand we're there to support them uh, and help them with their mission at the end of the day. So civilian state partners are just one of the most important things we have here on base. And uh, we, we love them. We, we work with them constantly every day. We have communication with them. And, you know, they bring a lot of good ideas that we may not have thought of as well. And we can incorporate that into Camp Ripley and, and start working with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's a big piece. And, then, and you know, additionally, we, we wouldn't be or we would be remiss if we didn't mention our environmental team, which keeps our flora and fauna working here at Camp Ripley. Otherwise, this place would be a desert by now after 90 years of training and uh, tanks driving all over and artillery firing and things like that. So, you know, maintaining the uh, na- our natural resources and our cultural resources so we can continue to train here. Yeah, I think we're, we're one of the uh, seven uh, bases that have that central landscape uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S. Uh, and we work directly with the Department of Agriculture. We have a whole entire department here dedicated to our environments, uh, the Defense and Interior 
uh, department, we we focus a lot on conservation. And the big thing downrange, and you, you can speak to this too, when we slept downrange in tents, you left it as clear as it was when we got there. Right. As if you were never there, right? And we have range control that comes out, and they look at it, and it better be clean. If there's trash anywhere on the ground, they will find it, <laughs> right. and you will clean it up, yep. right? Uh, so it, the, the environmental team here is uh, such a, a hardworking team, right? Josh Benton makes his makes his uh, rounds with everybody, and they're trusted. They're a trusted uh, team that work with uh, federal, na- uh, federal and state partners, and they've won multiple awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, every year, they, they seem like they win an award uh, one after another. Uh, we have two directorates administrating the environmental programs, and uh, Josh does a great job of keeping them in compliance. But you, you go downrange, uh, it, it doesn't look like a military base, right? Right. We've all been to uh, other bases, and I think this is one of the more beautiful ones. And yeah, this is like a state park almost. It's yeah, absolutely, yeah. it's a state park, and you know, keeping some of the history on there. There are uh, certain uh, ruins and um, historical artifacts out there on Camp Ripley that we protect. Right. Uh, yeah. There are certain, uh, you know, we let the civilian population come on and enjoy the land too. We do archery hunts. We do rifle musket loading hunts. Uh, so we do allow the civilians to come on base and enjoy our environment. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the, one of the most important pieces of Camp Ripley is our environmental team and how much we focus on those. Yeah. Well, sir, I think we're coming close to time here. Anything else you want to add about Camp Ripley? No, I, I, I would just uh, keep keep looking at what we're going to be doing here in the future. Our history is pretty robust. Uh, we, we've got a deep history and uh it is interesting. I encourage people to look at it, but uh, we've got a lot of co- a lot of cool things coming up in the future. Uh, continuing that winter training, we've got the uh, the biathlon coming up here uh, this year, uh, which is really cool. We we partner with high schools to have them do their biathlon meets. Right. And, yep. uh, no, Camp Ripley is. Uh, we're really excited about the new museum coming up too, uh, in a couple of years and seeing how that grows. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, sir, I appreciate a lot of your input and a lot of the, a lot of your background in history. So I uh, thank you for coming on to the Ripley Recall. And that concludes our uh, forty minutes of the Ripley Recall. I was joined by Lieutenant William Hermanson of the Camp Ripley Public Affairs Office. Uh, you can find our podcast on a lot of your favorite sites. Go ahead and subscribe and listen in for our next episode.